spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. March 5th, 2014 is certainly a day that lives forever for us. It's episode 254 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I've been here since that date. That's right. That was when the first episode of this show actually was recorded. That's right. So it's five years this week for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Thank you so much for just five wonderful years and so many great people that I've gotten to meet, things that I've gotten to do, things that I've gotten to talk about, and it's all because you're here listening to the show, and I cannot thank you enough for that. I mean, I know I just you know kind of went through this spiel on our 250th episode, but it's five years, and you know I thought about making a big to-do out of it. Here's the first to-do. Francesca Root Dodson from Gotham is going to join us this week to talk about playing ho- I mean, Echo in Gotham. We'll talk about that whole HQ thing, though, with her. I promise you that. So, I mean, yeah, it's a milestone show. We're talking about Gotham. It just wouldn't feel right if we didn't. I thought about making a big deal out of this week's show, having a bunch of guests and everything. I'm like, but this show started five years ago. I thought the best way to honor the show is to just do the show. I will have a big announcement, though, coming up at the end of the show that you're going to want to stick around for. But for now, we've been doing it since... The second episode of the show, actually. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Magdalene Massaggio, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the laptop or the tablet. Matter of fact, open up the long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And one of the first publishers to support us here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast was Valiant. Can't thank them enough for that. So I thought, you know, why not start out what we're reading with a review of a Valiant book. How about The Forgotten Queen, number one, from the wonderful Teeny Howard, doing the writing there. Emil Carpena on the art. Ulysses Ariola on the colors. Jeff Powell on the letters. And the great Kano on the cover. It is a fantastic cover, too, by the way. Now, you'll find out right away, there's two stories working at the same time here. One is in the present day. The other takes place in 1200 A.D., during the time of the Mongol Empire. Now, the present day follows Sarnaya, who is a researcher and archaeologist in search of artifacts from that very era. Now, we also, during that era, follow a witch, that's what we'll call her for now, with the ability to pretty much incite violence wherever she goes with any men that she is around. Sort of like a warmonger, if you will. But, you know, that's kind of like an homage to something that we've seen before from Valiant. Now... When we're going through this Mongol Empire, she meets up with a very famous Khan of that era. I don't think that that, you know, leaves a whole lot to imagination, but I'm not going to totally spoil it for you. She really shows no fear in the face of me. As a matter of fact, he gets kind of uh, kind of upset that she defies him as much as, as she does. And she's really just not really unhinged. If anything, she's so together and comfortable with herself it makes him uneasy. And in that time period, you'd you'd certainly understand that. And you certainly understand why they call her a witch. Now, it turns out, though, that that is not the only con that she would meet in her travels. And that very much plays into the end of this book. But I want to go back and talk about the present day because there's a very specific artifact that Sarnia is looking for. And, you know, it seems like it would be simple enough, right? You know, you get a team together, you you go down there, You take the dive, you grab it, and you're good, right? But this is comics, and nothing is ever, ever that simple, is it? But that, you know, that lends itself to the intrigue of the story, does it not? So, you know, she kind of decides, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take these matters into my own hands because she's pretty much alienated her entire crew at this point for reasons that, again, I won't get into with you here because I want you to read it for yourself and form your own opinion. Now, she discovers, though, something much more than she expected in the waters. And it's sort of where these two stories kind of converge, and you'll find out why when you read it. I will say, though, I was surprised at what kind of a story this is really going to end up being. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's subjective, actually. And you find out at the end that this story is not what you thought it was going to be 
on its surface. And I know that's kind of cryptic, but I'm not here to spoil things for you. And this was a pretty big spoiler because it was an eye-opening moment for me at the end of this book. I'm like, oh, so that's what's really going on here. And that's what this is really about. And I think it's a cool way to do the story because I got to tell you, I was on the fence when I was reading this. I mean, it was it was fine. I certainly enjoyed it, but you know, it didn't blow me away until I saw the end. And I'm like, that's the hook. That's the angle. And I love it. Now, I will say, if you like badass female empowerment, this book has that in spades. There's no question about that. Women rule this book as well they should. And it's a, and I think that is a great, great thing. And it will certainly continue to be so going forward. But it's that last page that sticks with me. Not because of the connection that's made there, but because where does this take the story going forward in the present day? is one of the things that intrigues me the most. The art in this book, again, it's a valiant book. I don't expect anything but great art, but I will say this is my first experience with Emil Carpina's work, and it is eye-popping. Definitely great stuff, especially, again, I keep going back to this last page, but it's one of the reasons that it popped so much for me was because of this art. You don't lose any of the great art from the cover to the interior like you, know, like you do sometimes when you have separate artists working on both. If anything, it's just as fluid throughout. You don't miss a beat. I went ahead and changed my rating on this after I saw the last page. This is a poll for me now because I cannot wait to find out what's going to happen in this next one. And Teeny Howard, once again, crafting a fantastic story full of intrigue, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Here's a book I actually reviewed on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about the second issue on the show. It's Oliver number 2 from Image Comics. Gary Witta is the writer, Derek Robertson on the art, Diego Rodriguez on the colors, Simon Boland on the letters. Now, just in case you didn't read issue 1, might be talking about a little bit of spoiler stuff from that, but I won't do too much just in case you missed it. This is kind of a take on the Oliver Twist story and a very different take at that. Now, if you read issue one, you know that there's actually a new breed of humans that were created just for the purpose of fighting wars and fighting battles. And there was a big one, and that's why this was necessary. And that was my biggest thing that I thought was so interesting about that first issue and why I was so excited about this story in the second one. Now, they're very much isolated now and forced to work as slave labor, which is a really sad part of the story. And it's really a post-apocalyptic, not really post-apocalyptic so much, it's almost like a steampunk-type environment type of world, very dark and desolate. Now, we do see in the first issue that we see a pregnant woman staggering in, and it turns out one of these ICVs has actually impregnated a human woman, and the baby survived. That baby was Oliver, and we find out in issue one that there is something special about Oliver that they, first of all, they kept him alive, they weren't going to. But with this, we find out there's something different about Oliver. We find out more about that in issue two as well, too, by the way, but I'm not going to spoil that here because uh, it's kind of a big one, kind of a big deal. So I will say there's a two-year time jump between issues, which I thought was very, very interesting, but there's a reason, you know, you have to age Oliver up to tell the rest of the story, I think. Now we get to meet the Lord Governor of England, and he's a real son of a bitch. I'm not going to tell you why, but just some of the things he says and wants to do Pretty damn terrible. I can tell you that much right now. And apparently one of these IVCs was caught trying to escape and ended up giving the government some very vital information. And I will spoil this a little bit because I have to do this to talk about it. They know about Oliver now, but they don't know anything else really about him, what he's able to do, or you know anything about his story really. Now, Meantime, Oliver has a surrogate father that's kind of brought him up, who's an IVC as well, and he's doing his best to keep him hidden, and there's a reason for that, and we know what that reason is, especially if you read issue one. Now, Oliver's getting older now. He wants to contribute more. He doesn't want to be sheltered anymore. We saw that in Hannah from Amazon. We watched that first episode as something very similar. Now, being sheltered is difficult because you really have no idea how things are until you see them for yourself, until you're actually allowed to go out there and see what's going on. Now, during this process, we do get to see a very famous Oliver Twist scene recreated for the story. It's brilliant. It's absolutely 100% different, for the most part, from what you know in the classic story. 
and there's obvious reasons for that, that if you've read the first issue or if you're reading this one as well, you'll understand it when you see it. It also leads to a major turning point in the story and a big confrontation between Oliver and his quote-unquote father. Now, there's some big, big spoiler stuff here that I'm not going to get into, but something that changes Oliver's mindset completely during this argument that he has with his father. This dark and desolate tone of the book was very much uplifted by Oliver's spirit in the first issue. It's one of the things I really liked about it. But the vibe in the, by the end of the second issue is almost a complete 180. And it shook me, considering how much I loved the first issue and kind of the infectious nature of Oliver. And this is a good thing, by the way, because a good story just kind of punches you in the gut sometimes, right? Just proves how invested in these characters that I really am in such a short amount of time. And that is a testament to the characters that were built by Gary Whitta and everybody in this story. I mean, it also doesn't help, it doesn't hurt that Derek Robertson's probably one of the best artists in comics right now. The raw emotion that's brought into the writing of this book is thrust out even further into the forefront by Derek Robertson's art. And it's just so bleak that sometimes it can be washed out and you have to give credit to the colorist in this as well, Diego Rodriguez. Nothing feels washed out. If anything, it pops more than you really expect it to. And I, you got to give credit to the clean lines and the very specific use of colors in this issue. This is still a pull for me. It was before, and it still is now. Can't wait to find out what happens in Oliver issue three when it comes out. It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, speaking of gut punches, let's talk about the season two finale of The Gifted with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Blair Redford from The Gifted, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the final showdown between the Mutant Underground and the Inner Circle, even the Purifiers as well. That's right, the triple threat match on The Gifted Season 2 finale from Fox. And again, I will drop a lot of spoilers about The Gifted Season 2 finale here, so skip ahead if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I'm also going to talk about the future of the show as a whole. I don't want to get into every little scene from this, but I want to pick out little bits and pieces to talk about because, first of all, Reva's not messing around anymore. She's decided that she's lost her people. She's going to move on, deal with it, stick with the plan. Confidence is kind of shaken in her, and she's not going to let this happen. So she's just going to power through. And, first of all, she uses the twins, excuse me, the triplets, against Andy and Lauren. That is not cool. At all. Basically going to force them to use their powers to take down the Sentinel Services building. Now, this is where the chink in the armor comes from Esme. Because remember, Esme had that story with Lorna that actually, you know, when she was forced to use her powers, she didn't want to use them as a kid. We actually saw that in a flashback and how much that, how much damage that did to her mentally. And then here they are doing the same exact thing. With Lauren and Andy. And Andy's completely turned the corner at this point. Andy doesn't want to hurt people. He's made that very, very clear. That, you know, we only do this because we have to. And he was getting ready to do that. He suggests to Lauren that they use their power to wipe out the purifiers. And Lauren doesn't want to do it. But he says, you know, this is something that we might have to do. That's when they get captured. We'll rewind back to that here in a second. So, actually, they take the building down. And this is a rough thing that happens to both Lauren and Andy. You would think this is one of those things that would crush them, right? But what it does do is render them unable to help with the rest of this fight. And they weren't there for the whole thing with the purifiers. I'll get back to Lauren and Andy in just a second because I want to talk about my man Blair Redford. John Proudstar, the Thunderbird, who we finally get to see in at least a somewhat comics-accurate costume for him, which I loved. He decides that he is going to be the boss. He's going to be the leader. Walk out there, take all the fire from the purifiers so the Struckers can get away, so Lorna can get away, so Marcos can get away to go after Reva because they know if they wait, Reva's taking down the whole government, right? So here comes John out like a boss, taking the gunfire, throwing axes and chains and punches and clotheslines and knives. It was almost like the the old days when Stone Cold Steve Austin 
would march to the ring in WWE and just stone cold stunner everyone in the ring and just walk out like it was nothing. Now, he doesn't walk out like it's nothing. He takes some heavy fire from the Purifiers and Jace Turner. But he does help them escape. And then as he's staggering to try and get away, because you can only take so much punishment, he finds Erg from the Morlocks. Or I should say Erg finds him. and says, you need help. He doesn't want him to help at first, but he does. So then Erg actually helps him against the Purifiers, and John finally gets his hands on Jace Turner, but stops just short of killing him. Now, whether or not you think that that was a good plan or not, I don't know. I got to say that I, I actually would have thought less of him if he did kill him because that's not who John is. Sometimes, you know, you get in the heat of battle, certain things are going to happen. Certainly there were bodies that did get dropped in that shootout. He uses the guy as a human shield. I'm sure that doesn't work out well for the guy. But this would have been a cold-blooded act. That is not who John Proudstar is. Although he's embracing his Thunderbird roots, by the way. He does drop the name. So it seems like him and Erg are actually coming to a certain understanding. We actually see more of that at the end of the episode. Well, But we won't talk about the end of the episode just yet, obviously, because we've still got the battle, too, going on when they take the fight to the inner circle. And then you've got Reed, Kate, Lorna, and Marcos who are taking this offensive to the inner circle because they know they can't wait. They've got to go. They've got to fight. And they don't have a full group. But basically what ends up happening is, is yeah, they go in almost figuratively, guns blazing, even though Kate's packing heat, not everybody needs that, right? Because they've got their powers. So you've got what's left of Reva's group. Reva's upstairs like Darth Vader, waiting for everything to, to unfold and, you know, fight when she needs to sort of thing. And I take that Star Wars reference because Reed decides the only way that they can defeat Reva is use a guy who's not in control of his powers. That fits Reed to a T. So he's like, I'm going to take her on on my own. And whatever happens, happens. He says he loves his wife. He says I love you to his wife, and he goes off to fight Reva. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this? The last Jedi? Everybody suddenly wants to just sacrifice themselves for the greater good. So that I mean, it's almost like the last act of the last Jedi, right? Where where Finn decides, okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself. Luke decides, okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself. That's basically what happens here because Reed goes up there. But I got to tell you, what a great moment for Reed if this is his last one, where he actually withstands Reva's power. Enough to take her down. That was a huge moment for a guy who was almost an, I don't want to say an also ran, but a guy that really didn't seem like he could do a whole lot as far as battle, as far as the battle was concerned. To have that moment to take down the big bad by himself, by being the first one to withstand her power, I thought was a huge moment. I'm going to miss the hell out of Stephen Moyer if he's not going to be on this show anymore. We'll talk about the future of the show here in a minute anyway. But he was so great. He was like this raw emotional part of the show, whether it be from his family or him trying to you know, reconcile him going from the guy who was on the mutant against mutants at first and now his kids were mutants. Now he's a mutant. He finds out what his dad did. There was so much that he went through in this show that if this is the way he goes out, basically as a hero of mutant kind, I think that that would be a really, really huge moment for him. So I'm not sure if he's gone or not because, again, it's comics, man. You never know. He might have found a way to survive because surviving is just what certain comic book characters do sometimes. So if that is his moment in the sun, it's a great one. We get to see the fallout with the family and with the team, with everything that happens with Reed. And we also get to see Esme have her moment where she turns against her sisters and Marcos takes them down. And that was a real emotional moment for her. We see that she might get caught by the cops, but then we find out, let's just dump it all here right now. Esme not only doesn't get caught by the cops, she ends up using her powers against Ryan and getting him to admit that he was part of the underground the entire time. I loved that scene. It was such a redeeming moment for Esme. And we get to see that now she's actually part of the underground again. Like a real part of the underground, not this, I'm going to go do what I want because, and I'm going to take everybody with me, part of the underground, like she was at the end of last season. No, no, no. She's a part of this fight now. We also get to see that Jace Turner 
He's in the hospital. He is still alive. So we're not done with Jace Turner yet, but Jace Turner has a big, because I, man, did I hate Jace Turner almost more than anybody else in this season. And that was tough for me because he was such a sympathetic figure in season one, but the decisions that he made for the reasons that he made them just, oh, just frustrated me so much. And then again, he's got this chance to kind of reconcile with his wife a little bit. He decides not to do it and continue with the fight. And he knows there was something going on with Ryan. And he almost ignores it because he doesn't know any other way. And it was so frustrating because things could have gone so different for Jace Turner. But again, a great job by Kobe Bell in that character, though, to show that range and make that switch sort of flip. And it wasn't even like he, he had been driven insane or anything like that. He was so driven by rage at that point that it was difficult him to turn back. I thought that was a fantastic performance by Kobe Bell, but I still hated Jace Turner, the character, with a passion. Now, it seems like everything's over, right? Everything's good. But then there is one good moment that does come from this. And that's the first of all, Erg says, the whole inner circle thing, not over. There are people that are inspired by Reva. They're going to continue. It's almost like any terrorist organization, right? You take out the leader, but there are still others that were following them in the first place and that are going to carry on these horrific acts. And that's sort of where we're at with this until a very familiar face shows up. That's right. Clarice has shown up. Blink is back. She's not dead. She somehow survived. John can't believe it. Everybody else doesn't seem nearly as shocked as John does, but Clarice is not playing. Blink is not messing around. She says, hey, there's something going on. You need to see it. I'm going to throw this crystal. You're going to jump on the portal. We're going to go. So first of all, she's definitely evolved her powers at this point. No question about that. She clearly has more control in her powers. But the question is, is are we in for a time jump now? Is it going to be forward or backwards? Is this going to be a whole days of future past thing that we're going to be talking about with the gifted? And is that going to mean that pretty much anybody could be alive or dead at this point, right? We get to like see a lot of, you know, warm and fuzzy moments though, like Lorna and Marcos getting reunited with their child. We get to see that even though the Strucker family has lost their dad, they're sort of together now. Everybody's a unit now, and they're going to rebuild the underground. There's a lot of great things that happened, but there's a lot of emotional things that happened in this finale as well. I do want to talk about the future of the show, though, because it seems like anytime there's a Marvel show that's not owned directly by Disney or ABC, that, yeah, you're going to have a problem because... The ratings for this show weren't fantastic. Let's just say that. Let's just be honest. It, overall, they were good, but they weren't knocked down, drag out good to the point where you're not even giving Fox a choice. They're absolutely going to have to re- renew the show. But that's not exactly what happens here. Plus, we have no idea what Fox is going to be doing with their more live sports programming and stuff, and maybe they have other ideas for these time slots. Also, you've got the fact that we have no idea what Marvel and Disney are going to do with the X-Men since acquiring 20th Century Fox. I know that they don't necessarily have the TV stuff, but their overall plan for the X-Men is absolutely going to affect the gifted. So I did a little poll at Downer Nerdy 757 on Twitter asking if you thought the show was going to come back for a third season. 65% of you said that the show will get renewed and will be back for a third season. I certainly hope so. I will say that season one was definitely better than season two because it was really hard for me with the infighting between the core group from season one. I guess that's my hang-up because I just loved these characters together so much. Maybe it was more the Marcos and Lorna thing than anything else that bothered me because especially with the baby involved there. I'm a dad. It's hard for me to see that when you've got a baby involved too. I know these things happen in real life, but that's the beauty of this, isn't it? Is that these sort of things just happen sometimes. Not on this grand of a scale where one person wants to go be with this person who wants to destroy the world and they think it's for the greater good sort of thing. That's not, you know, something that definitely happened that really happens in real life, but it's certain twists on real life situations and especially the family dynamic from the Struckers, which I thought was actually the strongest part about this second season. It was that undeniable bond, but still the fractures in the Strucker family and how it was able to be held together and how Kate stood up so much, how Reed dealt with everything that was going on with him, how Lauren 
just sort of became a fighter and really, really grew up this season. And then Andy finding his way, losing his way, and then finding his way back again. It, it was That was my favorite part of this season. I did really enjoy this season finale. Hopefully it's not a series finale. There were certainly some ups and downs in this season of The Gifted. Again, not as strong as season one, but I really did enjoy it. I, I really like Esme, too, and I'm really glad they gave her, her that redeeming moment at the end of the season, and now she's part of the underground again. She's a powerful force, man. If they can get her head right and then get her turned, in, turned to the right path, and maybe a leader like John can do that, and Lorna stepping up maybe as a leader as well, Maybe they can get her on the right path because she could be a really powerful ally going forward. Hopefully we get to see these characters on The Gifted again at some point because, man, I know I would miss this show if it got canceled. It's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Gifted Season 2 finale. Up next, yeah, we'll talk about some nerd news and the Dark Phoenix trailer on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Brianne Howie from Fox's The Passage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One thing you should learn in five years is that you definitely have to listen to what we have to say on this show. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is there was a huge load of DC Warner Brothers movie news, and I'm going to start with this one. Warner Brothers executive Kevin Shujihara was sitting down with the LA Times and says that plans have shifted for the DC movie strategy and that things are going to be Less connected. Bravo, Kevin, for finally listening and doing something that maybe I haven't said from the beginning, but I've been saying for years on this show. One thing I did say from the beginning of DC's play was this. You can't beat Marvel by being Marvel. You're never going to be Marvel. Nobody is. Look how many places have tried and failed. It just doesn't work that way. You have to try and do your own thing and hope that that's successful for you. And it looks like they've finally figured that out. Matter of fact, he went on to say that it feels like they're on the right track with Shazam and Joker, Wonder Woman 1984, and Birds of Prey coming out. But it won't rule out things connecting a little bit later on. And that's the whole point, isn't it? If it works, if the individual parts are working, then you can try and put them together. It's like Voltron, right? The individual lions are great. On their own. Sometimes you just need Voltron. But you don't automatically form Voltron. That's just it. You don't necessarily need the big robot. You don't need the big machine to get the job done sometimes. Sometimes you just need the little machines. You know, what if one of those machines just isn't working? And then all of a sudden you've got to try and build this robot without all the parts. And that just doesn't work for you in battle. And that's exactly what DC has been in. With Marvel, I know I hate the competition too. I don't think they're in competition with each other. That as far as dollars and movie viewers are concerned and movies being more expensive to go to, they're in competition in that sense. As fans, I think it's ridiculous. I think we should love what we love, not love what we love, whatever. Just, you know, go see what you want to see, basically, is what I'm trying to get at there. But to me, like if one piece doesn't work, like Henry Cavill is Superman and Ben Affleck is Batman... Just didn't work for them for whatever reason. Whether you liked it or I liked it doesn't matter. For them, it didn't work. So now they're in a place where they had this connected universe and now you've got to suddenly find new parts for said universe. Whereas if you did it this way from the beginning, if Ben Affleck didn't work, you remove him and you just start over. And it's not really that big of a deal, right? Because there's no connection there. Now you're having some movies that were connected and now some movies that now aren't going to be as connected. So it sounds maybe a little jumbled, but I'm telling you, this is the way it should have been done from the beginning. And as long as they can stay on this path, I think that they can make this work. And maybe someday it'll be connected. Maybe it won't. Either way, you know what? We're going to get a ton of great superhero movies, and I'm okay with that. Here's one person that won't be a part of it, though, apparently. Will Smith has exited... Suicide Squad 2, this news broken from The Hollywood Reporter. Now, it looks like there's nothing nefarious going on here. This is just a scheduling conflict and just couldn't work out, so they both decided to part ways. So this doesn't have anything to do with James Gunn or anything like that. No, you know, nothing shady going on here. Now, there's no guarantee he would have been in the movie anyway. Let's just put it that way. They haven't even released the roster for Suicide Squad 2 yet. There's no, I mean, everybody could be different. In the Suicide Squad. I mean, look at the comics alone. Deadshot wasn't in 
every Suicide Squad. He was in a lot of them. Not all of them, though. So there was no guarantee he was going to be in the movie anyway. Now, there's also rumors that, are they going to recast the role? You know what? Do you have to? Really? Do you do you wait to see if maybe you can bring Will Smith back at a later date for something else? And not I guess, how urgent is it for you to have Deadshot in your movies? I don't necessarily think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's that urgent. I, I think you miss the dynamic that Will Smith brought to the character, and I thought he did a great job as Deadshot in Suicide Squad, which I also liked. Hate me if you want. I liked the movie. It's it's just one of those things that I thought was fun. So I don't think you need to recast because I don't think there's any urgency to bring Deadshot in. And you go with a whole new squad or mostly a new squad, you don't even have to explain why he's gone. It's Amanda Waller. This is what she does. This is what the Suicide Squad is all about. It's going to be a rotating cast sometimes anyway. So what difference does it make? You, you Maybe you replace him with like Killer Frost or something and you sort of forget, right? You don't necessarily need, and I mean, you could even go the, the Deathstroke route if you really wanted to. There's a there's plenty of options here, so don't force it. You absolutely do not have to reca- recast Deadshot because I think you got a good one and you can wait it out. Another quick announcement was that Aquaman 2, yes, will be coming in December of 2022. Everybody, of course, expected to be back for that. When you have a huge success, why would you want to leave it? There's still that whole movie about the trench, the spinoff, that may or may not happen. I could see that happening before this. Maybe that somehow sets up this second Aquaman movie. But again, I don't think you need to do that either. You've still got Black Manta that you need to deal with as well. And you can't just go away from that. I'm sorry. You cannot just forget about the whole Black Manta thing. You've got to get to that as soon as possible. Because he's the villain that you want to see in Aquaman too. I don't care who you are. I know there's all, there's some other good ones that you could do and there's some other things that you could do with it. You got to have Black Manta. I'm sorry. He was just too good in the first one and it's too good of a villain story to not revisit in your second movie. Speaking of villains, very popular week for villains actually because Disney is going to be doing the whole villain thing with a Disney villain series coming to Disney+. Plus. This was Kind of confirmed by Variety, but there's no official comment from Disney and ABC, blah, blah, blah. Now, looks like the series is, at least right now, being called Book of Enchantments. It's going to be based on the Villains book series from Serena Valentino. Now, looks like this is going to feature origin stories from well-known Disney villains like Ursula, the Wicked Queen, the Beast. I know the Beast was in the list, but is the Beast really a villain? I guess, kind of. You, I don't want to go into the whole, you know, the Beast or Gaston, who was the villain. Now, let's not do that. I mean, if you want to have the debate on Twitter, I'm down for that. But uh, let's not do that right now. I'm just telling you what they had in their little release here. Now, Michael Seisman, who was responsible for Quantico, is going to write and produce a series. No original launch date is set. I'll tell you what. If nothing else, Disney Plus is really justifying you spending your money on their service with all the stuff that they say is coming and not all of it's going to be good. Let's just face facts. I mean, maybe they get lucky because it's Disney and they just have a good track record and all of these things are good, but not everything is going to be a home run. But they've certainly got enough at the launch of their of the of their service that's going to make you go, wow, I really feel like I'm getting my money's worth. Especially if they say they're going to be cheaper than Netflix, which I still find hard to believe because Disney always seems to feel like they can charge more for their stuff. Whether it be their movies or, you know, at the theme parks and all this other stuff. They always felt like they could charge more and it wouldn't matter because people will pay it. But if they're really going to make this cheaper than Netflix and give us all this original programming and catalog stuff, man, that's going to be tough to beat. It's going to be tough not to sign up for that thing. So I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to this. I'm not sure which, I mean, I would love to see a whole Cruella DeVille thing. I know that's kind of been talked about already with something else. I think a Cruella DeVille origin would be really, really cool. So that's one that I think I would, I'd really like to see. So let me know at Down and Nerdy 757 which one you'd want to see the most. Speaking of things you may or may not want to see, this I'm curious to see where this lands for you because a third Walking Dead spinoff, according to Deadline, is in the works. Now, this was part of a whole call with investors from AMC Networks and CEO Josh Sapin of AMC Networks. Just really didn't get a whole lot of specifics other than saying it's being in active development, which I hate that term. It's just a fancy way of saying it's going to happen eventually and we're not going to tell you when. And they could pull the plug on it at any minute. That's basically what active development 
means. Now, there was a, one interesting thing in this call because they didn't give any specifics, of course, where Sapin actually says they're aware that the interest in the original series may be starting to fade. That wasn't an exact quote, but that was kind of the gist of it. They realize it's been around for nine seasons. They also realize that the ratings are getting lower and lower and lower. So you want to call this a spinoff. I'm wondering if this is more like a potential replacement at some point for The Walking Dead, whereas you keep the world going, you keep the universe going, but not necessarily the original series going. So you create a spinoff of that. Just like, it's almost like the approach of the Arrowverse, I think, where, you know, Arrow started it all, right? And then The Flash was technically a spinoff from Arrow, and now everything, you know, Arrow was the trunk of the tree where all the branches are coming off of. So maybe they're going to use The Walking Dead as that springboard for all of these other things and eventually grow out from there. And I think that, you know, there's certainly enough of a world to explore there. There's certainly a ton of stories to explore there. So we don't need to limit ourselves to just this original series. Although Fear of the Walking Dead just hasn't worked either, I don't think. I mean, the ratings haven't been great for that. There's still plenty of buzz around it, though. Money's good at AMC, according to this conference call. So here's the other thing, though. I know that Walking Dead fans are going to be like, oh, maybe Lauren Cohen. You know, it's just time for Maggie's spinoff. Are we finally going to get it? We've already got the Andrew Lincoln movies. Is this going to be Lauren's turn? Well, we've got Whiskey Cavalier. I know it's only 13 episode seasons. Is she going to be able to do both? I think, you know, maybe she could. So maybe this is an opportunity to do something like that. Or is this an opportunity for them to go out of left field, do something totally different with The Walking Dead? Give us something brand new, kind of like they tried to do with Fear of the Walking Dead. And they're like, man, we better connect this pretty quick. And I think they actually, in my opinion, got to the connection sooner than they really wanted to because Fear of the Walking Dead, just the interest just wasn't as there. I mean, initially it was, but then it faded a lot faster than this original series did. So I think there are certainly a lot, a lot of options there. And, you know, I'm not well, you know, completely well versed in the Walking Dead universe. Not a huge fan of the show personally. I know that the show still has plenty of fans. And I've been to Comic Con twice now. I've seen the line at the AMC booth for Walking Dead. I know how popular the show is. I'm not stupid. That's why I'm talking about it right now, as a matter of fact. So if you're a huge Walking Dead fan and you've got an idea, let us know at Down and Nerdy757. I want to know what this might be, what your ideas might be for this. Now, I know there was a couple of big trailers that dropped this week. You've got Dark Phoenix, which is going to be out June 7th, and I believe April 12th for the new Hellboy that released that Red Band trailer. I'm not going to break down the entire trailer for either one because it's the second trailer. We've already seen the first trailers. I've already talked about the first trailers for each, so I'm not going to talk about every trailer. But here's what I do want to do. Here's the thing about second trailers. Second trailers for me are... Do you feel better about the for the movie than you did with the first trailer or not? Or do you have concerns now because of that? So starting with Dark Phoenix really quickly, I guess I feel a little bit better about it than I did because I'm, I'm seeing more of the connection between the characters. You know, you're, you're, you're seeing Mystique there. You're seeing how amazing Sophie Turner's going to be. I mean, Sophie Turner's going to be off the charts in this movie. That's one thing I do not doubt for a second. And then you see how the manipulation from Jessica Chastain there, don't you? And you just, you can tell that she's going to be, she's going to be very hateable in this movie, which is not easy because Jessica Chastain is pretty likable in almost everything she's in. But, so I feel a little bit better about this, but I got to tell you, the whole, it's your fault, Charles, you know, thing, that's getting old, man. I mean, it seems like that's in every X-Men movie. You want to blame every problem you have or everything that's gone wrong on Charles Xavier. I guess maybe you could, but to me, that's just, that's played, man. I really wish that they would have gotten away from that. And, you know, if this is the last X-Men movie under 20th Century Fox before it goes under the MCU umbrella, I'd be really interested to see if they completely reboot it after the fact just integrated in somehow how they're going to bring the X-Men into the MCU. And that again, that's another discussion for another day. Talking about Dark Phoenix, I, I was not sure with the first trailer. This one gets me a little bit closer. Of course, I'm going to go see it anyway, and I'm, I'm hopefully I'm going to enjoy it. But this one did not give me the warm fuzzies that I was hoping for in a second trailer. Now, Hellboy, on the other hand, does this movie not look like just a giant load of fun or what? The first trailer was fun. 
I know it has a Guardians vibe to it. I thought the second trailer had less of a Guardians of the Galaxy vibe. Even though you get to see some nice teamwork with the cast together, but you also get to see all these crazy supernatural aspects and, you know, giant monsters crushing bridges in the water. And it's just, it just looks like it's going to be a fun, just from start to finish thrill ride that you're just going to sit back. I'm not going to compare it to Deadpool, but I will say this. That's kind of how you felt with Deadpool, wasn't it? You were gonna, you were sitting down in your seat and thinking, man, I'm going to have fun for two hours and this is going to be great. I'm not saying that Hellboy is in all, at all Deadpool. Not in the slightest. But that's how I, that's the same vibe I'm getting is that, man, I'm going to sit down. I'm not going to worry about canon. I'm just going to have fun. And I know that, you know, in nerd culture, that's hard to do to just kind of toss canon out the window. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of it. It looks like they're doing a, a decent job with the canon anyway. It's hard to tell from two trailers. But this is one of those things where I say, ah, you know what, throw it out the window. Let's have some fun. And I think that's exactly what Hellboy is going for and exactly what we're going to get. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, time to talk about Gotham with Echo herself. It's Francesca Rue Dodson next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Dova from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. In case you haven't noticed, it's been kind of a crazy season on Gotham this year, and you know, every Thursday night, it's pretty much must-see television at 8 o'clock Eastern in this final season. And one of the reasons, I think, is because of her right here. She plays Echo. It's Francesca Root Dotson. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing, doing really well. Actually, Francesca, a lot of fans might you know, kind of forget that you were actually part of last season as well. Mm-hmm. Since you've been doing such a great job this season, they might have forgotten all about that. So did you kind of know then that there was a plan for you to have a bit more of an expanded role in this season? Not at all. I had no idea. Nobody gave me the memo. I don't even think there was a memo, you know, so it all just unfolded as things. It just unfolded right before I think season five started. So is, was this one of those cases where you, you were almost kind of ready to move on from it before you got the call like, oh, by the way, we'd like to have you for the final season? Because I hadn't died in season four, I thought, well, maybe they'll bring me back. But I certainly had no expectation that that would happen. And there wasn't even confirmation, you know, when they did tell me they wanted me for 501. They just said that. I wasn't even told really ahead of time what the scope of it would be, you know. So I was always just kind of getting more information, which is, I think, the way that television can just kind of unfold. Um, So I really had no idea at any point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. Now, actually, when we first saw Echo, she was kind of, you know, Jerome was still running things and Jeremiah had yet to turn. So talk mm-hmm. about kind of her loyalty and why it was so easy to follow Jeremiah after everything that happened. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like that was already built into their relationship. You know, certainly, you know, the way that Echo, when she's originally introduced, is talked about as being his like loyal kind of right hand for it's sort of sort of almost since like adolescence to me it's never explicitly stated but that's what it seemed like you know so then once that bullet got in my head you know it became easy to turn that that kind of like more kind of muted quiet devotion into something a little bit more crazy and demonstrative you know but really that thread stays the same throughout you know that like that propensity for her to stay with him no matter what was always there from the beginning Absolutely. Let's talk about that a little bit, as a matter of fact, as far as the look's concerned, because her look's actually changed a few times already since we mm-hmm. first saw you on the series. So how fun was it to kind of play with all of that and all those different looks? And did you actually have a favorite? Ever? Have you had a favorite yet? I mean, it was it's wonderful. That, so the people who do the hair and, and makeup and costumes on Gotham are incredible. They're so talented and creative and put so much like thought and creativity into what they do. So it was always wonderful. Every iteration was really fun. I have to say that um, my favorite look, can I say this without getting in trouble? I guess so. My favorite look hasn't even been revealed yet. <laughs> I love it when you guys say that. Can I say this without getting in trouble? <laughs> That's the thing. Is like, cause the lines aren't like totally clear, so it's hard to remember what's trouble, what's not trouble. But I think I can say that without getting in trouble. Um, you know, I like this, like, this iteration of echo that was on you know last what day is it even it's monday well that was on last thursday you know i really like that costume and that hair and that makeup Mm -hmm. is really transformative and delicious to put on you know did you actually know how kind of vast that this batman mythos was when you got involved in this whole thing yeah i mean i had grown up you know watching the tim burton versions and had always like adored 
in terms of like all comics, it was the world that I felt most drawn to as a kid. And I watched the animated series growing up, you know? So yeah, it was not a surprise to me. I hadn't personally, you know, there isn't, when I originally auditioned for Echo, I did it with a Russian accent and I was, it was brought to my attention that there is a canonical character who's a Russian assassin. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't quite know the depth of like that backstory, but you know, and then later with, you know, Echo becoming some, I, some illusion, uh, illusion to the Harley Quinn character. Like, yes, I was aware of, I was aware of that character and how beloved she is within the canon. So, yeah, since you brought it up, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I had to ask about it eventually. Let's talk about that whole Harley Quinn thing that's going on with Echo. I'm sure you can't, you know, confirm or deny, you know, whether she is or isn't Harley Quinn. Well, and I think at this point I can because the ser- series is over. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what I would say, so maybe this is like hot off the presses breaking news, but I would say that, like, for this is like, Gotham's version of Harley Quinn, mm-hmm. you know, and and you know her backstory is not the same as in oh, the animated course, yeah. series, you know, and um, but this is like this is what they, you know, the show wanted to like give it stab at it, and this is what they did. So that's you know that transformation. I just went as far as I my imagination took me because I was like, I guess this is it. I guess they're right. letting me do it, you know. So. Is it cool to kind of be able to do that though? Because that's one of the things I've always loved about Gotham is that you know what they they go you know what this is our this is our spin this is our version we make no apologies of it this is what we're doing and we think it's awesome is that, is that kind of great as an as an actress to come in there and to be able to work with people to do stuff like that? Yeah, totally. Because I felt like I could take it whatever direction I wanted to, you know. And it just happened that I took it in a direction that then people received really well, you know. Um, but I do feel like. And, and, you know, what this is maybe up to interpretation and maybe people disagree, but I feel like what I was doing with it was like a little more, a little darker, a little more psychotic, a little more disturbed than like certainly the animated series, you know, oh, that, but like, well, certainly more than the animated series. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but had the kind of joie de vivre and the enthusiasm and fun of that original character, totally. you know, I can't speak to, I mean, I don't know what people's interpretation of the Margot Robbie version is of like mm-hmm. how dark that was, but I did want to find something that captured that fun essence, but maybe took it a little grittier because I feel like that's sort of what Gotham's world is, you know, no doubt about it. We're talking to Francesca Rue Dodson, of course, was echo on Gotham, which you can keep watching. Watching every Thursday night, 8 o'clock Eastern on Fox and on the Fox Now app. Actually, Francesca, one of my favorite scenes from this season so far was with you and Selena, of course, has been played by Cameron Beacondova over these last seasons. And during her, it was actually the during her initiation when you guys are fighting in like the empty pool. So how fun mm-hmm. was that scene to shoot? Oh, my God. And what was it, was... it like working with her? Uh, I mean, that scene was like incredibly one of the best experiences of my life. Shooting that scene was so fun. It was great. I mean, it was, it was, we shot that whole sequence in two days and, um, it was really hot and we're all wearing like head to toe leather. So it was like exhausting, but, um, I mean, she was great to work with. She's, you know, I was mostly focused on just trying to frighten her and intimidate her, you know, (laughs) so I was putting most of my energy. In fact, there's a shot right before a commercial break in that episode where I like lick the, I like put my finger on the wall and then lick the blood off of my finger and i didn't know that the camera was rolling and i just was doing that to like frighten her and intimidate her (laughs) and it made it in the final cut and it made it in yeah i was also like humming threatening songs like or like frank sinatra songs like songs that were totally inappropriate you know and um that also kind of made it in and um so anyway i mean it was fun what i would say is that i was mostly just concentrated on making her you know within the realm of like i'm not like passing into something that's inappropriate but while we were shooting i was just trying to make her you know have an effect on her and the thing is that she had a huge effect on me too like there was one part one take where she like slammed the gun down into my hand really hard and it like really pissed me off you know (laughs) (laughs) she's tough man yeah she's tough and the thing is that it was great about her is like she didn't wilt you know what i mean like i was bringing a lot of insanity a lot of energy and a lot of crazy insane terrifying things to the service and she like didn't blink so it was kind of amazing that's great. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that fans actually pointed out since the, the Ace Chemicals episode actually aired were the roller skates that you were on, which yeah, we've actually seen that from Harley in the comics and everything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, had you ever been on roller skates before, and are there any kind of hidden bloopers that we should expect, Francesca? I have been on them before, but not in a long time, and I did practice a bunch before that episode was shooting, and costume was actually nice enough to just give me a pair to practice with. But, and I have said this 
on uh, like in other interviews that I've done, but what ended up happening the day of is that when we arrived on set, the, the ground was like so uneven and um, rough oh, that no. actually the stunt coordinator wouldn't let me roller skate because it was too much of a liability. So what you see in the episode is like a cutting together of both the stunt double and and me like wearing the skates but like with the wheels locked basically because and it was it was a real shame because i'd like practiced and you know i mean i just wanted to like do it but when we got there this floor was like it was like concrete that was all broken up it was a nightmare you know so you know what it was it's too bad that that's how it worked out but it's an incredible looking set so there's always a sacrifice somewhere you know you gotta tell you wouldn't have known by watching it i could tell you that right now so kudos to everyone on gotham that's for sure Oh, wonderful. That's great to hear. That's now, feedback. speaking of that episode, I mean, it did include a bit of a big moment in Batman history when Jeremiah falls into the chemicals and survives, yeah. you know, giving you kind of that true Joker origin moment. So mm-hmm. did you or any of the other members of the cast kind of stick around to watch that scene, knowing how important it was going to be for the history of that character? You know what? The way they scheduled it, that was on a totally different day. So I wasn't even around. I think I like would have, you know what I mean? Because I'm interested in participating. But like I, all the stuff that I did in Ace Chemicals, um, you know, Cameron wasn't around. Because it's just the way that it works, you know? So I did not see that. In fact, it was kind of interesting when I watched it. I mean, I watched it live last week. I was like, because I knew it was coming. And then I got to see it and I was like, wow, okay, great. You know, Um, it was the first time I'd ever seen it. What's it like doing like the live tweeting during a show like that when you know what's coming, you know what's about to happen, and you're watching the fans sort of build this up in their heads? Of, you know, because at one point you kind of know it's coming, and then you just see everybody's anticipation for it. What's that like when you know you've already been a part of it? I mean, I tr- I don't really pay. I try to not pay too much attention to like what people are saying in the moment because I guess it never even occurred to me. <laughs> So my Actually, you know what? That's kind of a good thing, though, because there's a lot of pressure that comes with that, too, and a lot of things that can, like you said, piss you off, especially yeah. when you're playing the, the Harley Quinn-like character on the show. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, my manager who, like, really follows everything and who, like, is part of, like, kind of a, a fan world in general, he, mm. like, kind of reports back to me and tells me, like, people are generally, you're trending this way on Twitter. People don't like this thing. They like that thing. You know what I mean? So oh, you've got a filter. Me, like, yeah, it's great. It's really Man, cool. I need a filter. I know, I know. It's really wonderful. And I, you know, what I did do is I watched, like, I had a bunch of people over for 503. Since That's that was, cool. like, such a huge episode. And, like, I just watched it with my friends, you know, which was great. But, you know, I try to stay out of, like, whether or not people are liking it. You know, I hope that people, I, I really wanted to, like, respect the character and sure. respect the comics and the world that it's coming from, you know, in the animated series. So my hope is that people like what I did. Um and I, de- I definitely keep that uppermost in my thoughts, you know, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like, well, at a certain point, what are you going to do, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, since you joined the show so late last season, mm-hmm. it feels like we kind of barely were able to scratch the surface of Echo and who she is. So is it kind of a bummer knowing that, you know, the show <laughs> is ending. We're not really going to get a chance to tell even yeah. more of her story. Yeah, I mean, I totally, yeah, I would have loved, I think it would have been different if there had been a full 22 episode order, you know? And unfortunately, because it was like a shorter season and because it's the end, like, I feel like, yeah, we barely got to scratch the surface. I would love to. I mean, I don't, you know, as of now, there are no opportunities ahead that I'm aware of, but Mm -hmm. um, I could play this character for a long time, you know. So, yeah, it's a bummer, but I don't know. Perhaps there'll be something else in the future. So, Look, Looking back now that things are all wrapped, do you, do, you, do you see an opportunity like, man, I wish I could have done more scenes with this character, with this person. I really wish I could have seen Echo interact with this person more. Interesting. I mean, I really love Nigma. You know, yeah. I love... He's so... I really love that act. I love... You know, I just love what he does with everything. So, I mean, it would have been great to be able to interact with him a lot more. I mean, I don't think I interacted with... Actually, yeah, I never interacted with... That's the thing is that, like you know, you sort of get sequestered into whomever you're the main, like, you know, who you're in the main battle with, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, he's the main person who I feel like it would have been really fun to have. I just don't know how those two worlds would have even come together, you know? That's the beauty part of it, though. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty part of Mm -hmm. of shows like this, is is stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Now, we do see Echo get away, though. In the Ace Chemicals episode, after the whole yeah. confrontation between Bruce and Gordon, and I know, you know where does she go? That's my question. Well, that's she just, exactly like, my question. I know actually. it's like because I, I mean, and look, nobody gives a shit about what I said, but 
But I was like, wouldn't I like follow him because I want to protect him anyway? But <laughs> that was see, that was my gut, my gut, my gut instinct too. I'm like, where was she? But then I'm like, yeah, there's got to be a what reason is- she wasn't there. Um, I mean, you want to hear the cynical reason? Do you want? Oh, hear absolutely! That? I want to hear the cynical reason. I mean, yes. I mean, I think that like that scene in Ace Chemicals gets to be between Batman and the Joker. Totally. You know what I mean? Yep. And like, I would have just kind of cluttered the frame. You know what I mean? So. I did, you know, I did feel like I did a bad, I mean, like, my character did a bad job by, like, leaving her boss, you know what I mean? But maybe he dispatched me somewhere, you know? Um, But I do think that, like, that needs to be their moment. So in that way, it makes sense to me. Like, if I were there, that would just confuse the situation. Because it's really, like, in some ways, it's sort of like a love story between them. You know what I mean? Totally, yeah. It's, um, which is sort of, I don't know if. Wow, I'm getting really not esoteric, but a little highbrow. I don't know if you've ever like read Chekhov, but Chekhov is you know this famous Russian playwright, and in all of his plays, everybody's like in love with the wrong person, you know, mm-hmm. like who doesn't love them, but the other person's in love with somebody else, and it's like a little bit, you know. <laughs> I feel like Jeremiah is just in love with Batman, and I'm just in love with Jeremiah, and you know, what I, mean? <laughs> just, you, like, I don't think anybody's ever made that comparison before, but that's not that is not crazy at all. Oh. <laughs> that is not crazy at all. If you really want to get down to it, like if you want to gr- grab that shovel and start mm-hmm. digging, there's yeah. something there, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I loved what um, I loved what happened in that scene, you know, yeah. and I thought and I understand like I understand, you know, maybe just because I'm already predisposed to playing villains. It makes sense to me. But that idea of like, if you won't love me, then I can be bound to you in some different way. Right. But I just need to be bound to you. Like that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. And I thought Cameron did a beautiful job with it. Totally. And I think that adds more intrigue to your character as well in not being there. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I know. I mean, it's it's funny. Sometimes, like, fan, I had one fangirl wrote me this, uh, DM'd me, and she was like, just, does Jeremiah love Echo the way that she loves him? You know? And it's <laughs> just like, I wrote her back, and I was like, I don't know, honey. You know? Wow. like, You know? I'm... Maybe probably not, you know. <laughs> you oh, know? the shattered dreams, one DM I at a time. Know, I, oh, know, I know, I know, I know. Well, so, I mean, yeah. now that we know that this is this Gotham will be ending in in the next few episodes here, and you know, once Gotham does come to an end, would you like to kind of work on something else in the comic book genre again at some point? I mean, I would be happy to. I think it's become really clear to me that, like, villains are probably my um, forte, you know? So any kind of deranged, uh, psychotic, disgusting, fun, (laughs) clown-like characters, I'm more than welcome. So this is when you fax someone your resume and all those things are... (laughs) Or on there, you send it. You send it through the email. Is that on your LinkedIn? Disgusting and crazy. Disgusting and all that stuff? creature of the swamp, creature from the depths. <laughs> um, no, I actually. But I remember when I was shooting Five O Three, there was a moment where I was playing Russian roulette with myself, and I remember like everybody on set was looking at me, and I felt like, wow. I had this moment. I was like, you know, I've never felt so seen before. You know, <laughs> that, that was that was an awesome scene. So I could I could totally understand why you feel that way. So, yeah, I mean, I'm open, you know, but I do think that if I could have a, a, a long and glorious career playing supervillains, I mean, geez, God, a girl can only dream. There are you worse know? things. So, there are totally, absolutely worse things. Totally, totally. We can't see what other crazy stuff that Echo's got going on on Gotham <laughs> every Thursday night, 8 o'clock Eastern. Make sure you watch it on Fox. Watch it again and again. Hey, you want to rewatch those old episodes? There's Hulu. Mm-hmm. There's the Fox Now app. Go do that because you want more of her. It's Francesca Root Dodson. Thank you so much for joining me this week. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. So much fun chatting with Francesca Rude Dodson about playing Echo on Gotham. I love the fact that she was not afraid to drop the Harley Quinn card, though. I thought I was actually going to have to pry that out of her. Wasn't afraid to talk about it. Wasn't afraid to make those comparisons. And a lot of honest information, but a lot of good teases, too. So I can't wait for the rest of this season of Gotham, even though I know it's ending, which kind of bums me out. Still can't wait to see what's going to happen in these final few episodes. Speaking of which, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for Francesca Root Dodson for joining me to celebrate five years of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Anybody that's listened to the show once or through all of these 250 plus episodes, I just thank you. Anybody that's ever been involved with the show 
as well, whether it be on the show, behind the scenes, any guest that's been on the show, anybody that's ever done anything in support of the Down and Nerdy podcast, I cannot absolutely thank you enough. The big announcement is, is that we've added yet another event to the calendar. That's right. I'm going to be headed out to Anaheim at the end of this month to cover WonderCon in Anaheim, the big, big convention that's happening down there. Hopefully, we'll get some really neat stuff while we're down there. So expect a lot of pictures on our social media pages at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram, Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy as well. Follow all of our adventures and find all the shows you need at Down and Nerdy Podcast.com. And if you've learned anything over the course of the five years of this show, hopefully it's this. You never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.